Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here. I'm Stan Reason, and I have a guest on today. He's probably wondering what the rooster is all about. I don't think he's ever heard that part before, because he is actually new to our show. He is the author of 10 national bestsellers, including Jesus on Trial, The Emmaus Code, and The True Jesus. And uh, it's actually a mystery why we haven't had him on the show yet. His name is David Limbaugh, and his new book is The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament. And David, I'm glad to have you on the show, and I don't know, how did we miss you all these years with all these things that you've been writing? I'm just probably off the radar of the uh, of your world, the theologian's world. I'm kind of more in the lay lay area, the lay space, and try to uh, interact. You know, I've got, uh, I get on the, the radio shows, the political shows, because I've been involved right. in political commentary, and so I guess that's a natural segue, and I... They, I get a lot of favors. They probably don't want to have me on to talk about Christianity, but they let me. So it's just a blessing <laughs> for me. I'm sorry, well, but I, I will say this. Having not been on your show, I have read your book, as you know. Uh, I think the story of the story of mankind. For one no, of the, the best story of reality. Story the, of reality. The, one one yes. of the best books I've ever read. It, it, it's the most, it, it's the most uh, succinct, succinct explanation of the biblical worldview I've ever read. And I, I gave away a bunch of copies of that. Oh, well, that's great. I Thank you for that. I was going to mention that I, I owe you, because when that book came out, I, I don't know if it was Frank Turk, who is a mutual friend of ours, uh, yeah. told you about the story of reality, and then you wrote a, a very complimentary piece in your own column, um, and uh, I really appreciate it. That's how we first got in contact. I think Frank gave right. me your contact information. I was able to say thank you um, for that, and this is one of the reasons I'm glad to showcase your work as well, which uh, is quite extensive. I mean, it, I'm, I'm a little bit curious. You're a nationally syndicated uh, columnist. You're a political commentator, but you've written all these books about the Bible. So, David, how did you get into the um, the Bible book writing business, so to speak, because this is this is lucid stuff about theology, and we'll get into the details of the resurrected Jesus, but this seems like a completely foreign area to your native habitat, political commentary, law, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I, I started out as a skeptic. Um, I always believed in God, but I didn't embrace Christianity or uh, accept Jesus uh, as my Lord and Savior. And, and I began a quest to uh, search for Jesus. I always wanted to be on the right team. I knew what the right team was, but I couldn't quite get over some supposedly intellectual doubts. And mm. so I started reading apologetics and Josh McDowell and Norman Geisler. And uh, I could go through Paul Little, so many, so many that I that I read. Mm -hmm. And um, I, to make a long story short, I after I finally became a believer, I was so excited to discover that the Bible was really the Word of God that I just wanted mm -hmm. to inhale it and, and theology and everything about it because I, I didn't want to wait. I was impatient. It, it, it's hard to see how it all fits together. By the way, I wish I'd had your book, which which shows how it all fits together, but I didn't understand it, and I want, I was impatient and wanted to look. So I just, I found out there's really no quick way to do it. You just got to, you know, get your elbows greasy and study it. And that's what I did. And after I did that for a while, I, I was so inspired. I wanted to write a book to share mm -hmm. what I learned. So I started writing a book on the Old Testament 
Um, and I'd taken a course, a, 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 what, do you, a, what do you call it, an extension, whatever, online mm-hmm. before they ever had online courses. It was just by mail or something, the Moody yeah. Bible Institute. And it was really a uh-huh. fascinating class on the Old Testament. I just discovered it on my own. And so I started writing and I submitted it to a Christian agent. And the agent said kind of, um, well, it's a little too highbrow for layman, but you don't have a clue for theologians. So you're right in the middle. You don't know what you're doing. Get out of here. So <laughs> I, I, I wasn't really that discouraged. I, I, I just, it was a great exercise. And so uh-huh. then I just kept studying it and I had never written any books yet. And I started writing political books uh, because I was recruited by a, a publisher to do that. And I've, I've written six political books and five Christian books. And mm. after I got my platform and after I got an experience as a book author, I had more confidence and, and I'd studied, taught the Bible and all that. I wanted to share what I learned with lay people. I wanted to approach people that you and Frank and others may not encounter because, well, you guys probably do because you go to college mm-hmm. campuses and that kind of thing. But I I'm I meet people in the lay world that were situated where I I, who are, are now situated where I was. And I thought I was mm-hmm. in a unique position to relate to them. So I started writing my faith journey, Jesus on Trial, my first Christian book, which was also uh, an apologetic. And from that, uh-huh. I, I continued to write books about the Bible itself. Well, we, we kind of consider ourselves here at Stand to Reason as translators. So we rub shoulders with the smart people, try to get some of that to rub off on us and then try to throw the ball so the rank and file can catch it. And it sounds to me that's a lot like what you're trying to do with the theological books that you've written, like Jesus yeah, on Trial. It, yeah, and you, what you, you guys do is very valuable. I follow you on Twitter and I've read a lot of your work, not just your books, but but the things your your organization does. And they're very mm-hmm. valuable to people like me uh, mm-hmm. because I take those and then I can kind of absorb what you you say and explain and then help hopefully explain it in a way that's intelligible to other people that may that you may not reach. Well, that's exactly, I think, the accurate description of uh, the resurrected Jesus. The subtitle is The Church in the New Testament. When I first picked this up, David, I thought it was a book on the resurrection. But what you mean yeah. by the resurrected Jesus is the impact on the church and the growth of the church um, in the New Testament based on that launch of the resurrection of Christ and then the writings from the apostles that follow. So this is actually part of a larger series of books um, that are kind of connected in a way. Can you tell us a little bit about the the larger project that this book is a part of? Yes, and it, it, I didn't set out to make it a project. Uh, I Again, as I said, the first Christian book was Jesus on Trial, My Faith Journey. After that, mm-hmm. I wrote the Emmaus Code, which was Jesus in the Old Testament. You know, he, mm-hmm. he encountered the two men on the uh, Emmaus Road and explained to them, he showed to them everywhere he appeared in the Old Testament. That just blew me away. And mm-hmm. so I studied uh, so many different sources about uh, how Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament and, and, and all the rituals, how they pointed to him. And I tried to put that in one book, and that was called the Emmaus Code. Uh, and then, then it was the, the uh, True Jesus, the next book, which was a chronological compendium of all four Gospels, hmm. chronological order. And right. so I, I go through every verse, almost every verse, chapter and verse, and either uh, state it verbatim or paraphrase it, and then add commentary along the way and hopefully insights. Oh. Uh, again, with the, the primary goal of 
encouraging people, inspiring people to read the Bible, because my books about the Bible are not the Word of God, but the Bible is. And I believe the Bible is its own best apologetic, that it, yeah. if you go to the, to the Word uh, with, the, with an open heart and seeking Christ, uh, Christ will show himself to you through the Holy Spirit. And, and so that's my goal, is to, to push people, inspire them to read the Bible for themselves. So the next one was uh, the, the, let's see, Jesus is risen. Okay, so, so the, went, I'm going through the New Testament book by book, covered the Gospels in the, in the true Jesus. Then uh-huh. Jesus is risen was the Apostle Paul's first, uh, it was the book of Acts and the Apostle Paul's first six epistles. So there's no magic to it. I just go through every chapter and verse of each of these books and try to explain them in lay terms. And, and, and you know, I have Logos Bible Commentary, and uh, I go through extensive research and try to get the right. best of the commentators and the best in, insights and provide those to the reader. And so uh, the next one with this book was uh, The Resurrected Jesus. I didn't title any of these books, by the way. The publisher mm. did. I think they're, it's a little artificial the way they title them. Uh, and I think, you know, the resurrected Jesus, I can see why you might or somebody might think that's misleading. It, it's it's just a way they wanted to put Jesus in the title. And obviously the right. resurrection is an overarching theme in, in, in Paul's letters. But there's so many other themes. And so it's just about I mean, there's no real difference substantively between Jesus is risen and the resurrected Jesus. I mean, they're right. the same title. And so it's kind of arbitrary to me, but I, I don't fight. I don't fight with them as long as it's not blasphemous or whatever. I don't fight with publishers about things like that. I have a really good sure. relationship. And so uh, this book is uh, that I wrote with my daughter. This is the last one. Mm-hmm. The Resurrected Jesus is on the Apostle Paul's final seven epistles, uh, mm-hmm. the uh, prison epistles and the pastoral epistles. Right. And so uh, it, it like the others, it goes through every book, chapter and verse. But we add a new element. My daughter's really kind of a prayer warrior, spirit-filled. I, she inspires me. Uh-huh. She's 29 years old, and she's uh, given us our first grandchild. That's and Kristen, she's right? real Yes. Kristen. And so she, Kristen, and she has written uh, opinion pieces for Fox News on the, uh, Christian subjects, Christian themes. And so I asked her if she wanted to join me in this. And so in addition to helping me with the text and, and editing each other back and forth and contributing to the commentary. She also primarily wrote the prayers, which are every three or four pages, which are directly related to the, the right. topics, the subject matter of, of the chapters were and, and the Bible. And mm-hmm. again, it's it's designed to help the reader interact with Scripture. And I think she did a great job on those. Yeah, I, this is, uh, I think, a strength. You've got a couple things going on here, and I don't want our listeners to miss this, because you kind of started out, you know, as you pointed out, writing your story, your your transition to Christ, and some of the reasons for that, etc. And then you started, you fell in love with the Bible, and then started writing things about the Bible. And there's a lot of people that are listeners that are not going to be able to plow through commentaries. It's just not their thing. Yeah. But having a series now, which you've begun with the, the person of Jesus in the Gospels, which to me, trying to put all that stuff in order is a challenge. So you must yeah. have really worked hard at that. And then uh, to talk about the book of Acts and the first six epistles of Paul, which is Jesus is risen. And now this book, which is the pastoral epistles, and uh, which are another seven. And I guess you've got a third one coming um, that you're anticipating doing it. I see that in your postscript here in the book that you still are planning yes, to do. Yes. To finish yeah, I don't this. know what the... 
I don't know what so, the bizarre name of that one will be. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll probably be Jesus has rose again. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Three, you know. But, um, but, but you, what I want them to see is if they want to get um, a handle on each of these books, starting the Gospel to the Book of Acts and the Pauline epistles, which you've covered so far, um, this is a way to do it because your chapters are the books. And then you go yes. through verse by verse, giving that kind of a even-handed commentary based on your research. And I, you know, I looked at, you, you, you quote everybody from John MacArthur to St. Augustine. I mean, you're, yeah. you really have a depth of research and you're bringing a lot of things uh, to the table uh, in this work that the readers are going to benefit from. And, um, and, if, and, and then you have, with the contribution of your daughter, Kristen, this not only whatever she contributed to the narrative, but the prayers that are in there. Yeah. This is a very, very pastoral work itself. I mean, that's the way I, I read it as I'm going through it. You're pastoring, in a certain sense, the people who are reading the book, explaining to them the text, and then leading them in a devotional element that's tied to the text with the prayers. Exactly right. It's kind of a, a Bible study and devotional all in one. And um, I, I hope people uh, can interact with the Scripture a little more, and, and it becomes more accessible to them. Because mm -hmm. I, when I first started, I thought the Bible was very intimidating. And it doesn't have to be. People just need to start and dig into it. And I hope this book, these books, will help people do that, uh, people that don't have particular expertise in it. Uh, you mentioned something a minute ago. I really love the fact that I can introduce lay people to commentators and their insights, including the early church fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, and throughout Christian history, some of the greatest commentary commentators and their insights on Scripture uh, that I find compelling. And I, 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 because I don't think they're otherwise going to be exposed to most of those. Even pastors are not going to go into commentators. They, they might, but they're not going to cite them. I just think it's just fascinating to read. I mean, you know, the, the Christian worldview, I think, teaches us that human nature has never changed. I mean, we're, we're made in God's image, uh, but we're fallen. Mm -hmm. and, and while we've had technological uh, achievements and scientific achievements, and we continue to build cumulatively on our knowledge, as a, as a race of people, that is the human race of people. We're no smarter than Socrates. In fact, not quite as smart as he was, or Plato, <laughs> or Augustine, or Aquinas. And these people, it, it's not just a, a, an intellectual curiosity what these ancients thought. They're not ancient at all when it comes to the, the experiences they had, the questions right. they had, and, and the things that we all share in common. And it blows my mind, and it always has when I've read these insights, uh, mm -hmm. how how much we are alike uh, mm -hmm. as, as these people. And so I, I, it's exciting to me to share those amazing insights in this, these, from these intellectual giants. And, and also, and this is something I, I, I'm proud of you and Frank and Norman Geisler and others for, that there's, this, there's this misperception in our culture that Christians are not thinking, that we, our faith is based on, based on blind faith and not on evidence, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. And that we leave our intellect at the door. And it is it is so false. We are the mm -hmm. most inquisitive people. I mean, some people aren't. And I sometimes I envy those people who can just accept everything without <laughs> rebellious right. faith, rebellious doubt that I have. But people like you who bring an intellectual approach to this. Now, obviously, we don't want to err too much on the side of the intellectual or the intellect. 
But you guys help. I think you lend credence to Christianity Mm -hmm. when you bring the intellectual side to it. And I don't think that should be understated, the the value of that. Well, you know, David, when I, uh, to that point, um, when I started on my master's in philosophy under J.P. Moreland, um, I became aware of Copleston's like seven volume set of the history of philosophy. And he starts with the ancients. But once he gets into like the first century, up until about the 18th or 19th century, virtually every single one of the major contributors to Western thinking was a biblical Christian. Virtually every single one of them in that book was a biblical Christian. And it just goes to your point that Christianity is not only has the best things to think about and the resources, in a sense, in the worldview to think deeply about, but the deepest thinkers of Western civilization have thought deeply about it and have written on it and defended it. And the major scientists were Christians. Absolutely. And unapologetically so. Yeah. And uh, so So it's the Christian worldview that led them, their scientific curiosity, and led to all these discoveries, contrary to the people who think it's all about the Enlightenment. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, back to your point about when you first started, the Bible was kind of intimidating, and I think it is true because people can't make sense of it. It's one of the reasons I wrote the story of reality, to try to give a big picture of the whole. But I think part of the problem is, is they just read little bits and pieces here and there and have no sense of the unity of not only the whole Scripture, but of the individual parts, like the book of Philemon or Colossians or Ephesians, all books that you cover in, in your book. What you do is you treat these as whole things. And this is, I think, a value you bring to the readers of your books, in this case, the resurrected Jesus, the Church in the New Testament, because you give us a whole thing, the book of Colossians, for example, and you say, this is who it's written to, here's the circumstances, here's what it's about, here's what it means, in very simple, straightforward, accessible terms. You hit on something that resonates with me, by the way, in that, in that statement, the, the unity of the Bible. This is, this is something that I wrote about, not that anything I write about in these is original, but I share, again, what insights I have, but mainly uh, borrowed from others. And the unity of the Bible is one of the first things that convinced me that it is the Word of God. It is, you know, is a book that was written by 40 authors over 1,500 years in different languages and different geographical locations, and yet it is all integrated and tied together. Mm-hmm. And the, it's not a book of theology. It's a book of human stories uh, in which theological lessons are imparted and, and also direct connection with God and, and, and Jesus's incarnation and all that. But it is about real people facing real struggles. That's and right. these Christian principles come through the words. And the theological principles are sprinkled all the way through the Bible, from Old Testament to New Testament. And there is an astonishing consistency in, right. in these principles. And so I, I think I have in the Jesus on Trial, I had a chapter on the unity of the Bible. And mm-hmm. I one of the books I used was from Fuller, the Fuller Theological Center. Somebody Fuller wrote a book on the unity of the Bible that blew me mm-hmm. away. I don't know mm-hmm. it, it, about that. But I studied that. And, and let me just tell you one thing, too. This is a little off subject about the unity thing. When, when I was first, uh, when I was still a seeker, uh, I, I, and I'd written about this in, in, Jesus's, in uh, Jesus on Trial. I really believe that people that evangelize should not be discouraged when they don't see the immediate uh, fruit of their work. 
in terms of other people immediately becoming converted. Because in my case, I'll bet you a thousand seeds were planted. And finally, mm-hmm. you know, I had that epiphany that led me over. But one of those seeds was planted by a law school friend of mine, the hmm. friend, uh, guy that I grew up with. We were, our families were good friends. We, the brothers, Rush and I, and, and that, that family's brothers hung out together. He went away to a certain law school in Texas. I went to the University of Missouri, Columbia. We, we always came back over the spring, over the Christmas break. He brought some law school friends. We were talking by his parents' fireplace, uh, and his friend, Steve, fellow law student, was cool. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a, a ladies' man, and yet he's a Christian. And I'm going, this is weird, because I thought all Christians <laughs> were nerds. And, and so I'm really intrigued by this guy. He's got a guitar, and he's not even playing Christian songs. He's playing rock music. And, huh. and I'm not really a smart aleck, but I did ask questions. Why would, you know, the typical questions, which when we're doubters, we think we're original. Why would God, an all loving God, allow people to go to everlasting hell? And these, these kinds of things. Why would Jesus have not taken himself off the cross? Those kinds of things, which, of course, now is, is a greater proof of, of Christ's deity than, than it's a reason for doubt. Paradoxically, uh-huh. we don't need to go into that. But back then, I thought I knew things and I didn't. But what he did was, instead of uh, being annoyed with me, like, well, who is this smart aleck? And I, I really wasn't being a smart aleck, but, but he could have taken it that way. Instead, he went to his guest room, brought out his Bible, his personal Bible, and it was a reference Bible, and he gave it to me. He not only didn't just let me look at it, he gave huh. it to me. And this was a deeply personal thing for him, because, huh. if, you know, our personal Bible, especially back then, we could barely afford a Bible at That's all. right. And so, it, but I had not, this is how embarrassing, like, embarrassingly ignorant I was. I didn't know there was such a thing as a reference Bible where, where it showed how uh, verses from the Old Testament were tied to those in the New Testament and vice mm-hmm. versa. And he showed me, I go, wow. I mean, it's embarrassing to admit this on uh, your national <laughs> show, but, but yeah, that's so, so he, he kind of first exposed me to the unity. That was my point. I did have a point right. about all that. So yeah. Well, okay. it's a good point, too, and it's one that we make a lot because uh, I remember my, uh, I mean, this, my daughter asked me once why, Papa, when, this is when she was about eight years old, she said, Papa, why, why, why do we believe that God is true? And, uh, of course, I answered this question in one sense before larger audiences of adults, but now it's my eight-year-old who's asking me, and so I had to ponder how I was going to answer. And finally, it just kind of dawned on me this line, and I offered it to her, and it's a line that really captures my whole approach to this enterprise, and that is, honey, the reason that we believe God is true is because He's the best explanation for the way things are. The reason we believe God is true, or broadly speaking, Christianity, the Christian worldview, is because it explains the world in a sound way and in a way that's internally consistent. It describes the world, our problems, it speaks to our hearts, resonates with our deepest intuitions, and then offers a rescue plan, That which plan covers 2,000 years of time, but as you pointed out, David, is, is profoundly integrated over that time with all these authors, all these writings, to, to um, I guess, kind of result in this great this great um, thinking of the word here, kind of mosaic as you put it all together, which is the person of Jesus of Nazareth who brings all of those things together. And that, I, I haven't read the Emmaus Code, but from what you've just described to me, that sounds to me like what that book is covering, the stuff Absolutely. in the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Christ. 
And, and I love your phrase. I'm going to steal that. I'm not even going to footnote you. Resonates <laughs> with our resonates with our deepest intuitions. That's a point I wanted to make. I have made, but I never put it in those terms. And that's the perfect way to describe you, it. I've you said, may have it. Thank you. I've said that to people where the Bible is the only book that squares, the, the biblical worldview is the only thing that squares with what we know instinctively, innately to be true about our nature, about mm -hmm. the world itself, about the fall, about evil, the inexplicable evil. We know there's spiritual warfare going on because mm -hmm. you cannot otherwise explain the glorification of evil, the, the, the uh, de declaration of right is wrong and wrong is right. Uh -huh. The Bible is so, so self-evidently true, in my opinion, if you open uh, your heart up to it. Mm -hmm. uh, just to change, change uh, topics a little bit, I'm curious, because this book was written with your daughter, Kristen uh, Limbaugh-Bloom, and I'm curious about the writing relationship as a writer myself. I did do a book with a friend of mine, Frank Beckwith, many years ago, and we kind of he did some chapters, I did other chapters, you know. But uh, I'm just curious what you mentioned that your daughter is responsible for the prayers. Um, how did that relationship work in terms of the other material? Was she the researcher and you the wordsmith, or vice versa, or some combination of that? How did that work? Well, first, is Frank Beckwith is he the one that defected to Catholicism? Yeah, 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 that would be a way of putting it. Yes, <laughs> I'm kidding. I've, I've read his. He's very good. I, 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 uh, I, I've read his stuff before. I can't remember what, but yeah, he's a very good guy. Um, but uh, Kristen and I, I, I didn't change my um, method from the other books. I just kind of added her to it. In, in mm -hmm. other words. I had this idea. I've, I've helped. I've ghostwritten books for other people or collaborated, but I've never had anyone ghostwrite my books or collaborate with me other than I've had unbelievably good ed editors. And people have no idea. If you, if you haven't had a good editor, you can't believe how much they can help you and make it accessible. By but the way, can Christian, I cut in for a moment, David? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of yeah. Frank Beckwith, he calls ghostwriting plagiarism by consenting adults. That's yeah, a Frank Beckwithism, you know. He's that's he can awesome. turn a phrase. Uh, anyway, yes, okay, can. back to and the by, topic. And by the way, I love Catholics. I'm not one of these evangelicals that thinks they're you know evil. So I didn't mean anything by that other than joke. No, I know Frank's a good friend. I saw him last week in Denver. We spent some time together, and he continues to be a good friend. Though we have a difference good. of opinion on some of these issues, he's making oh, yeah. a great contribution there at Baylor University and whatever. So no problem there. And some of my favorite uh, writers are Calvinists, and I'm not really a Calvinist, although mm -hmm. I, I believe a lot of it. I'm, I'm close, but I'm not quite there. Anyway, mm -hmm. so Chris— Does so, that kind of be what, like, like being half pregnant? I'm just kind of curious. I don't no, think never so. Mind. I, think, I don't I think, think Calvinism is a degreed property. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> or, not sure he, I'm not even sure Calvin was a five-point Calvinist, but that's okay. another issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. So, so I, uh, the, the, my method here is to— in these books is to open Logos Bible software. And I have a, a, an insane and obscene amount, amount of books. And there's mm -hmm. this, what is called a passage guide, where it's a tool. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, you open up a verse and you hit a button and it opens up a hundred commentaries sure. to that verse. Oh right. I have God. Logos. It's, it's great. It's not even fair, really. It's so, it's almost <laughs> cheating. It's so easy. <laughs> I, and, and so, but so, you, but, but you have to study it all and you have to have a level of discernment to determine what's, what's a little out there and what's mainstream and up, what's concerned, what fits with what uh, you believe is biblical. And so I go through and do that. And so I write the first draft and then she, I, 
not just the first draft of a chapter, but first few pages. Then I send it to her and she reads it, edits it, adds her own insights and adds original material. Then I edit hers. But huh. it's not it's not I write one chapter. She writes another. I, I think you'd lose your unity of voice if you did that. And we've just mm-hmm. mentioned how important unity is, haven't we? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you, so, <laughs> so so but she she on the other hand, she wrote the prayers originally. And I probably had less to do with editing those than she did with way less than she did editing and contributing to the text. She just mm-hmm. has a gift for that, a facility for prayer that kind of blows me yeah, away. They're very sweet and they're very tied to the content that you describe coming yeah. from the details of each book. And actually the prayers are are so numerous. You can't flip hardly two pages in the book, and the book is about three hundred and twenty pages or so. I read it all in three days, so I had wow. a really great time going through all of this material. It's like reading the New Testament in three days, or at least the not the whole New Testament, but the pastoral epistles, which is the focus. But the prayers, I think, really add a dimension to this, where you're taking it, um, you're, it's a guard against getting too heady with the information, and the prayers bring the information down to a personal level, so that we are, we, it's real food for us spiritually, it is not just information. That's exactly right, and, and she'll be happy to hear you say that, because that's She's we've gotten really good feedback. And and I I do think uh, it's it's from the Holy Spirit what what she writes. It's just so natural for her. and and it just um, it drew me closer too. and she's mm-hmm. an inspiration to me in that way. So that's I think great. the readers would would benefit from that. And uh, as you say, you know, that's a good sale sales point of the book. And I'm not even really trying to sell it. I, it a good sales point for the book is that. It is a way to get through the, it's like a way to read the summary of the Bible, these verses, and even the specifics uh, in a quick way. Then you go back and read the Bible itself. And again, I want to emphasize, uh, it's, it would be terrible if the purpose of this book or the result of this book was just to, to keep people from reading it. The goal is to push people to read the Bible itself. Well, the, to, I mean, to be fair to you, David, the, the, each chapter is kind of an interlinear commentary on Scripture, because you'll have yeah. a full pericope, paragraph, whatever section of Scripture, then you'll talk about it and apply it, and then you'll have another section. So you can't not read the Bible while you're reading your book, well, because that is true. Yeah. the Bible's each chapter, Colossians, Philippians, uh, Titus, First and Second Timothy, whatever it is you're reading in this book has all the text there. So um, it's it, and I think it just what it does is bring all of this home. Actually, what I'd like to do, we're going to take a quick break, and then I'd like to get into the content itself, um, and we'll just kind of do a, an overview of some of the things that you talk about in the different chapters that focus on the different chapters of the New Testament, specifically Paul's pastoral. Epistles. My guest is David Limbaugh, and the book, this one, is The Resurrected Jesus, The Church in the New Testament. Back in a moment. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. 
You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. All right, Greg Kokel back at you here, giving you a piece of my mind as I do every Tuesday. That's the live show from 4 until 6, and uh, generally we're taking calls. We're not doing it this hour. I have a guest. Uh, but if you want to call in to during a show when we do take calls, 4 to 6 p.m., 855-243-9975. And, of course, the time is Pacific time, not daylight anymore, just regular, ordinary Pacific time. My guest, David Limbaugh. David, I'm wondering, does this whole changeover from daylight time to regular time annoy you? It drives me nutty. I don't know. Yes. Yes, it uh, it does. But I'm so used to it. And I live in a place in Missouri where the seasons change so radically that the time might as well, too. Oh, OK. Uh, that's right. I grew up in Chicago. So I and by the way, I did spend um, two months in Missouri at Fort Leonard Wood, 1969, basic training, U.S. Army. So I know what Missouri is like. Most of it's a lot nicer than Leonard Wood. I know that for you, sure. You, you you beat me by three years. I was at Leonard Wood in '72. Okay, uh, I was a res- I was a reservist. You were National Guard, I think, right? Yes, yes. But did you train at Leonard Wood for basic? Yes, NAIT. Oh, oh and NAIT. What company were you in? I remember Alpha Five Three. Do you remember what you were in? Delta Three Two Drill Sergeant. Yep. <laughs> Delta yep. Three Two can do. Delta yeah. Company, Third Battalion, Second Field Artillery. Uh, anyway, so those are old times. Now we've had we're, we've well, that, that was a long time ago for both of us. Uh, we're talking about David's book. Um, this one, the Resurrected Jesus, the Church in the New Testament, is part of a series, and he started writing um, because he became a Christian and wrote a book about that. Jesus on trial, then Jesus in the Old Testament, the Emmaus Code, and then graduated to the New Testament. A natural progression. Wrote about the Gospels, and uh, this is your second book about the non-Gospel New Testament books, right? Right. Right. Yeah, because Jesus is risen is about Acts and six of the Pauline epistles. And so these are the other seven, is that right? Because he's That's got 13 correct. total. Yes, and these are yes. the pastoral epistles. Tell me, in your mind, what is the, the kind of the unique significance or importance of the pastoral epistles, this group of books? Well, I think uh, Paul is writing to his understudies and colleagues, Timothy and Titus, and I think he's encouraging them to uh, carry on the work, you know, Paul, mm-hmm. that he's been doing. And he realizes, you know, ironically, he's probably done more more good 
for Christianity while imprisoned in house arrest in Isn't Rome. That amazing. That that then he you know God can't be held back you know and so, but but he writes these letters to encourage them you know and it's I think it's an interesting thing that some of us control freaks are not very good delegators and Paul I think was probably a control freak himself but huh. the the importance of the gospel transcended whatever his personal characteristics were about that and he delegated the most important tasks to these people to to his friends and and so he's encouraging them and telling them to to stay the course and telling them how to do it and how to approach uh the various congregations and how to plant churches and 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 how to handle matters of church discipline and that type of thing i don't mm-hmm. know that i could uh i don't know that i could summarize the the primary purpose of anything but he does a lot of the, a lot of things in these little letters that he writes these short letters sure one of the advantages for um having to read your book so quickly <laughs> Um, in other words, the whole thing in yes. three days. So I'm doing 100 pages a day, 50 in the morning, 50 in the evening, kind of. And yes. given that it is an overview of the pastoral epistles, seven of these biblical letters that Paul wrote, is that I kind of get a lot of it all at once, and certain things stood out for me, taking the whole thing in, that might I might have missed. And, and I'm just giving you the four of them, and— <clears throat> Uh, maybe you'd like to comment on it. Uh, the first thing that stood out for me was the emphasis on the grace of God. And this is something you talk a lot about, obviously, because it's had a deep impact in your own life. The second thing was the necessity of holy living. And you point out that these are not in contradiction to each other. The third thing is the importance of prayer. And also, uh, appropriately emphasized by the prayers your daughter have has added to the books, the pages of the books, and then finally that that uh, especially in Titus and Timothy, protection of the church from false teachers. Uh, these are big themes that stood out for me. To, frankly, that would I don't think would have occurred to me as um, significantly in the Pauline epistles these pastoral epistles especially, if I had not been reading through your book, which highlights each one of these epistles, and I got a whole bunch of it at once, these things jumped out. Um, You want to say anything about any of those particular things? Well, well, first, I want to be clear. When you said the pastoral epistles, those are just three of the seven. The other four are the prison epistles. So I want to make sure we're on. on, No, no, fair enough. Right, right. When you asked me about the pastorals, I was talking about the two letters to Timothy and the Timothy one to and Titus. Right. So right, if yes. you meant if you meant all seven books, then I would have had a different answer. Uh, but okay. And and when you say the uh, the grace of God, of course, I it's it's amazing that you know that we're fallen and and we're undeserving, and yet God sent His only Son to save us and to suffer all the indignities of human existence, to be persecuted, punished, tortured, killed, uh, so that he could ultimately be bodily resurrected, and so that those of us who accept him in faith could follow him in bodily resurrection and live with mm-hmm. him in eternity. And yeah, the grace of God is just an overarching theme. And and I think uh, a subhead of that, or maybe a, a different side of the same coin, is that we're talking about salvation by faith alone. And I, and right. Paul emphasizes that emphatically, emphasizes that, I mean, in all of his letters, in all of his epistles, Romans, all the epistles that I've covered in the other books, uh, as well as these seven. And 
uh, I know there's dispute about that among some people, among some Christians, but I, I think it's unequivocally true. And I think it's consistent with what Jesus taught. Now, Jesus uh, told the thief on the cross he would be with him in paradise, and mm-hmm. he had not done anything to deserve it. He And he had not had he not been baptized. It wasn't faith plus Jewish rituals or circumcision. It was faith in Christ alone. And mm-hmm. and Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to the Father except through me. And so it is a consistent message throughout. But you're right. Paul also in these epistles uh, tells us about how we should live and how important it is to live. There's this uh, this tension in Christianity between faith and works. And, you know, people talk, it's not just the faith enunciated in Paul's letters, salvation by faith alone, and the supposed contradiction in the book of James. Mm-hmm. Show me you know, show me faith without works, and, you know, and, and I'll show you the faith that is dead. Uh, there's no inconsistency there. The, the, the point is, there's so many, it's a complex issue that, that we are called to be holy. And we primarily do that. Once we're saved, we, we are empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit to overcome sin on a daily basis, but it's a constant struggle. We do it through the Holy Spirit's power, but there's an element of human effort involved because mm-hmm. we have to of course. Put, place ourselves before God, before the Holy Spirit, and invite Him in. And hopefully we'll grow in, in our holiness and our sanctification mm-hmm. and our Christ-likeness uh, by doing that. But I was also reading a book the other day about the kingdom. And, and this is nothing I covered. Well, I mean, I covered it, but not in the way I'm about to describe it. And this, this author talks about how throughout Christian history, a lot of us have missed, a lot of the theologians and Bible teachers have missed the importance of kingdom living. That they put to, you know, there's so many elements of the already but not yet uh, mm-hmm. element of Christianity. Like the kingdom of God is here, but it's not in full ripened form until we are glorified in heaven with him. This guy, this author was writing about the fact that Jesus preached on the kingdom of God more than anything else. And what he, he didn't, he just wasn't just talking about the future. He wants us to enjoy life, the kingdom of God, while we are living by partaking of his love and glory while we're here and enjoying life. And mm-hmm. and I think part of the way, I haven't read the whole book, but part of the way we enjoy it is through service, true happiness, as opposed to acquisition of, of material things and that type of thing. But I'm getting mm-hmm. off the subject, but I'm just saying, there's so much tension between faith and works and there's nothing inconsistent just because the Holy Spirit, I mean, the, the Calvinist side, this is my point. The Calvinist side always says, no, nah, you have nothing to do with it. You don't do anything, but we do. We do have to still try to be yeah. holy ourselves, regardless of whether we give the Holy Spirit the credit for it. We have to aspire to holiness. I really believe that. Well, I'm with you on that one. I, I'm actually reformed in my soteriology, but um, as I read the Puritans, I, I haven't read anybody that emphasizes more holy living than the Puritans do. They are really heavy duty on good that. Good point. That's a good point. And you, and you cite John Calvin, who I think sums it up well, that grace alone saves, but grace that, uh, that I'm sorry, uh, faith alone saves, but faith that is alone without works isn't a saving faith. And I think yes. when you tr- do the treatment on, on Titus, you do such a nice job of balancing this out, Thank David, because I think this you. is something difficult for people. But Paul says in t- to Titus, he says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us 
to deny ungodliness. So there's your there's God's grace, and what is the proper response to God's grace? To deny, which means we are actively involved in the process, yes. to deny ungodliness, and that's the that's our sanctification. That's the pursuit of our sanctification. I think you do a nice job of balancing that out in your book. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek about the Calvin thing, because Calvinist thing, because I, I think there's so much biblical warrant for election and all that. And, and I, my point I was making earlier was some of my favorite writers are Calvin's, uh, MacArthur, Piper. There you, there you These go. guys right. are brilliant. And so I'm just saying, it, to me, it's a little, sometimes the, 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 the uh, uh, real strong Calvinist approach sometimes doesn't seem as loving to me, the way these guys present it. And I, uh-huh. that's my problem. I'm, I'm probably yeah. not uh, an Arminian either. I'm just a hybrid. <laughs> but whatever I am, I want to be biblical. I, I want the Bible to be my guide and authority. Yeah. So I, we all yeah, do. That. That's well, well done. That's uh, well, well put. Um, now, you made the distinction, and one that I missed, and I'm glad to be corrected on that, between the, the uh, prison epistles and the uh, pastoral epistles, which are the Titus and Timothy set. Okay, you yes. do First Timothy, then you do Titus, and you do Second Timothy, because that's the order they were written in. I'm looking at yeah. our time, and we're kind of winding down. You cover each of the books— Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians, um, before you get to Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy. But these books stand out for me as, at least in my view, David, as being especially relevant to these times that we're facing, and partly because the emphasis is on two things, and I'm I'm, I'm just throwing you some softballs here so you can go with it, because you you have no trouble going with it. You're very excited about all this stuff, which is great. And that is, what they're doing is they are passing the baton, Paul is passing the baton uh, and to Timothy and Titus, and he's charging them to guard and protect the truth from false teachers. So go with that. Talk to uh, yeah. us a little bit about yeah. that, because you emphasize this a lot in the book, since that's an emphasis of those three books, the pastoral epistles, and, which and also one well, of them is a prison epistle, too, Second Timothy. Yes, and, and as yeah. well, and, and, and also in Colossians and, and a lot of the other uh, epistles, Paul is adamant that correct doctrine be preached in the church. And he is very firm about correcting false teachers, heretics, who have introduced heresies into the church for whatever reason. Maybe it's their pride. Maybe it's the fact that they're Judaizers who still believe that in order to be saved, you have to uh, uh, honor the Jewish rituals itself. I think Paul, in a nutshell, is saying, there's nothing wrong with Jewish rituals. You go ahead and perform them. Continue to be circumcised if you want, but don't you dare say that you have to add anything to the finished work of Christ for salvation. Mm-hmm. And and it's important for him to correct them because if you dilute the gospel in its incipiency, then there's no chance it's going to grow. And the way you tie that to what's going on in our modern times, we have a dilution and distortion of the gospel in our modern times, and we see the church imploding. My own Methodist church uh, is imploding. There, there's going to be a disaffiliation from the, the United Methodist Church, and there's going to be a lot of churches who disaffiliate are going to join this global church, which is not what it sounds like. It's a more mm-hmm. conservative church because they're introducing uh, same-sex marriage and all that kind of thing into the traditional church. Th- th- that's contrary to Scripture. And right. Paul would say, don't you dare do that. Don't conform to the culture. Don't try to please man. Please God. Honor Scripture. And Paul is saying that, and when people say, oh, Jesus is salt and light, and Paul was mean, and 
whatever. Paul was firm. Jesus was firm. Nobody wrote a more uh, uh, rigid set of moral precepts than Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So don't tell me that he was a guy that was indifferent to sin. It's absurd. It's absurd on his face. But they try to remake Jesus in their image. They now there's a there's such there's such an outrageous blasphemy going on in one of the churches where they depict Jesus as a transsexual. I don't know if you've seen no, that. Just in the last I did. Few days. I saw it. I saw it. If it that, was if that does it was laughable. It if it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. And they were taking and, as their text paintings from the medieval times. I mean, it's, uh, it was just silly. But how it, is it that silly, people are getting impacts, caught up in that? Yeah, go ahead. See, it's it, I take it seriously. To me, it, on its face, it's silly, but. People, it's affecting the culture. It's affecting the church. And what what was universally accepted as sinful is now not only uh, accepted as not sinful, but celebrated, celebrated as a greater good. Yeah. So the murder of babies is a, a moral good. The mutilation of children is mm-hmm. a moral good. Those who oppose those are evil. If it, it is so uh, upside uh, down, obvious that spiritual war is spiritual warfare yeah. is behind all this, and and Paul addresses spiritual warfare in in, in uh, these books as well. Yeah, Ephesians six especially. I, I have a question yes. though, in light of what you just offered, uh, because you are obviously deeply committed to the gospel, written all these books promoting the truth of Scripture, and um, and in the spirit of Paul, saying we cannot put up with false teaching or distortions or inappropriate distractions. Yet you're a political commentator, and you write and you you speak on those things too. Now, there are some people, not me, but there are some people say those are inconsistent. That is a distortion to get involved with, for as some would characterize it, political power instead of for the gospel's sake or the kingdom's sake. Um, I know this is something you thought about. I, I'm curious how you would respond to that kind of challenge. Well, I, in case uh, somebody, just so people would know, I wrestle with this a lot. And I wonder, I, I know that I'm uh, admonished to be uh, winsome in my approach. Uh-huh. And I try to be you know, on Twitter. Most people are so sarcastic and caustic, and I have been before, but I try not to be. Uh, and try to present uh, as, as Christian-like a demeanor as I can. But I, I fail, obviously. But yeah, I sometimes think, and I'll be honest, Greg, I sometimes think I idolize politics. I mean, I was raised, my dad was a conservative of conservatives, uh, constitutionalist lawyer. He raised my brother and I to be strong constitutionalists and patriots. And sometimes I think we conservatives, you know, we, we don't idolize uh, American patriotism and our politics, but we, I think sometimes we have to check ourselves and, and, and remind ourselves of the ultimate king is Christ and mm-hmm. not our political ideology. So I don't deny that I wrestle with that, but I don't think ultimately there's an inconsistency. Um, I think that, uh, that my political views align with scripture. And I think there's an important thing. I don't want my pastor to talk politics from the pulpit, but there's a very, tr- the first place most conservatives don't, and leftists do. Leftists politicize everything. Now, I don't deny mm-hmm. the Christian right did politicize, and during the Revolutionary War, they did. But but the thing we need to understand is you, we cannot be we cannot mute ourselves because somebody can characterize something as political when it's really not fundamentally. That is to say, a pastor should be able to talk about life, the issue of abortion, without somebody 
muting him, saying it's political. It's only right. political because the left has made it political. This is a spiritual issue. And I cannot be muzzled because somebody could categorize yeah. it because things bleed over in politics. So I'm sure. not I don't think that's an inconsistency. That That's an example. But, well, but there, I, are, I, there are tensions. Uh, that is my concern, too, when people just blanketly dismiss politics as a legitimate avenue for Christian expression, because once the other side labels something political, then you got to wave the white flag and you're out of it. And as you pointed out, everything's political now. Everything but, but, is political. And also, also, the political arena is where we we protect our religious liberty, yeah, and we right. must protect our religious liberty. Now, of course, you could say, well, when Christians are persecuted, the gospel is going to flourish, and that's true, too. But we still have to try to open it up and protect the mm -hmm. constitutional protection, the very first amendment of the Constitution uh, with the religious liberty. We need to keep that robust. Yeah. Well, Paul tells us to pray in First Timothy chapter 2, in the beginning of it, pray that our leaders are godly so we can live in a peaceful environment. And a peaceful environment is where the gospel is going to flourish the most. So, uh, and I do think there's a distinction between being involved in politics as a power thing and be involved in the political realm, that it's just the public realm with morality. Politics is all about morality, the proper use of power. And if we are doing this to have the proper influence, not because we're power mongers, but because we want to have an influence for that which is good and right and true. And we have suffrage in this country. Most people didn't have that for most of history. We have an opportunity to make a difference uh, with our and, vote and with our voice. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and that's very true. And, and by the way, in a so-called democracy, you know, we're not a pure democracy, we're a constitutional mm -hmm. republic. We are the rulers. Therefore, we don't have to worship a ruler. We don't have to get bow, bow down to a ruler. Our system is based on the very opposite. They are representatives of the people. It's different than a Roman emperor. And, mm -hmm. and so, but, you, but, but I think scripture tells us that we need to obey authority. It's all about family structure. It's about God's created order. It, it, it's a theme that goes throughout the Bible, which, by the way, and as you can tell, I'm a tangential stream of consciousness thinker. This is why <laughs> this is why this this perversion of the, the genders is so fundamentally flawed. God created mm -hmm. man and woman. He didn't create people to identify arbitrarily as who they want to be in some narciss narcissistic orgy. This mm -hmm. is God created man and woman. And it's blasphemous to suggest otherwise, in my yeah. humble opinion. No. Well, maybe on our next time together, you could tell us how you really feel, David. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. Well, you know, this is something to keep in mind. We just have a couple minutes, but to tag on, um, it's so obvious to me as you look at the creation order, the devil can't, and you mentioned spiritual warfare earlier, and Ephesians 6, of course, addresses that. You talk about it in your book, title of which is The Resurrected Jesus, The Church of the New Testament. Um, the devil can't get at God. What he can get at is God's image bearers. God set up the world in a way so that his image bearers can flourish. We read about that in Genesis 1 and chapter and Genesis chapter 2. And what the devil is trying to do to get at God's image bearers and keeping them from flourishing is undoing all of those things that God set in place at the beginning for human flourishing so humans could be deeply damaged. And it's just so obvious to me as I look at the broad landscape here, and it's uh, and I want people to see what's going on, just as you do, 
Um, and, and this is why, to me, the, the, there isn't this politics, theology, kingdom rift. These things are all related to living in God's world and promoting what is good and right and true, and opposing those things that are destructive to God's image bearers, human beings made in the image of God. So we got like 55 seconds here to go. I, I, I want to ask you one more question, but I think, no, that's not going to happen, because you have so much to say about everything that I ask you. I just want to thank you, though, David, for being on the show with me and, and, and for writing these books that make so much of the New Testament accessible to the average reader. Thanks for that contribution. Thank you so much for having me. And I, I will say this. I'm not kidding about your books, and I get nothing out of this. You're not paying me a commission. I, I, I don't know how many people um, have read that, that are in your audience have read your books, but I will, I will do this. I will buy 25 of your books and give them to people that you choose that call into your show or that write you letters. I'll, I'll pledge you to do that now. I think your book is that. Now, I think I'm not demeaning our book. I love our books and all that. Um, but I, I want people to see the whole picture. Uh, of the of the Bible, so I, I'm pledging I will do that if you would like. Thank to you, that. David. Uh, there's my music, so that's my signal. Uh, my guest has been David Limbaugh, uh, his co-author, his daughter Kristen Bloom, and the book is "The Resurrected Jesus: The Thir- The Church in the New Testament," the third of a series of David's um, explaining the scriptures, particularly the New Testament, to average Christians so they can get a real grip on the whole thing. Uh, Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. My tip my hat to David for spending time with us here today. Give him heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.